Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. But first, we talk about this COVID-19 pandemic. Is it slowing down? Have we reached the peak of this thing? I sure hope so. Let's check in with Dr. Kevin McLeod now. He's internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. He's done a lot of work in the COVID ward there. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. McLeod, thank you for coming on. Mike, you had me at like public money going to a wood splitter. Like I, I want to know why somebody bought a wood splitter with public money. That's what everybody <laughs> wants to know. That's what everybody wants to know. We're going to talk about that today on the show. That's a crazy, oh, that's a crazy story. Yeah. Follow that one for years. Okay, yeah. Kevin. No, I mean, I, it is. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, you and I were sort of chatting back and forth before, and and it, it I think the public can sort of feel like it is slowing down a little bit. You've got to remember, hospitalizations do lag, but it's very, very different than the earlier stages of the pandemic. People's lengths of stays in hospital are. are certainly shorter, like how sick people are is is less in general. You know, there are still some people that are outliers that get very, very sick with this, but we are sort of heading into a, a bit of a different phase. And I, I think, too, people can feel this. You know, this is, this is going to be a more long-term kind of chronic virus that is going to stick around. And, right. and you know, when Bonnie Henry says we're going to treat this more like the flu, it doesn't mean that you know, it's going to affect people the same as the flu. Some people will get really sick with COVID-19. Some people won't. But we've got to sort of get to a stage where how do we sort of live with this in society longer term, right? This idea that we're going to get down to no COVID around is is actually going to be pretty challenging. Okay, well, let me play that clip for you of Dr. Bonnie Henry and the, and the comment that you just referenced there. Now, this was last week. This jumped out at a lot of people here. Uh, Bonnie Henry talking about you can't eliminate all the risk from this virus completely. We have to learn to live with it. Here's what she had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. We are all familiar with these new measures. They're much more like how we manage other respiratory illnesses, even influenza or uh, RSV or enteroviruses that cause the common cold. We cannot eliminate all risk. And I think that's something that we, we need to understand and accept as this virus has changed and has become part of what we will be living with for years to come. It's Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking last week that we'll have to live with the virus for years. My guest is Dr. Kevin McLeod, Lionsgate Hospital. Do you agree with that? Like, you know, we just got to learn to live with this thing now. Yeah, I mean, I think I think when people heard that, they you know, understandably, we're upset and thought, are we going in a very different direction? But but not really. Like, th- this is sort of the direction that it's been heading for quite a while now. And, you know, I know people are kind of piling on Adrian Dix and, and Barney Henry and not liking that comment. But, man, those guys are working really hard. They're trying their best with this. And, and you know, the, the idea that we're going to get rid of COVID-19, I think really any epidemiologists will tell you now that's just not possible, right? We, we have it in society at such a level, and it will come down as we're seeing, 
but you're not you're not going to see this completely disappear, right? So next yeah. fall of or the fall of 2022, you know, we will have some patients coming in who have some lung conditions and other things who are sick with this. But we've actually had that for for you know forever, right? It's just different viruses. So we we do see this, and it's just going to be one more virus that's out in the environment that can that can impact us. And and you're right, we do have to live with that. Do you think that there's a lot of people out there who've been exposed to the virus and maybe even had COVID but don't even know it? Like, when do you see that? Any Absolutely. evidence of that? Absolutely. Yeah. And now we we don't have great data on that in in Canada, but you know, and, and this is controversial, but you you do look at some countries where they go and they've done antibody testing to get a real sense of how many people have actually had COVID and not realized it. And yeah. you know, there's some thought that 80 ish percent of people who've had COVID may not have had symptoms or may not have realized it, or maybe they just had a little tickle in their throat or something else. And Hey, they never got tested. Right. right? And, and so there's, there's a lot of people out there, I think that, that have probably had COVID and, and just not realized it. And many of your listeners are probably thinking, right? Well, you know, I had a sore throat and I couldn't get tested. I think I probably had it. I'm not sure. You know, that that's a lot of people. And, and, um, you know, again, like we do have to learn to live with this. This idea that we're going to make this completely go away and completely eliminate risk is, is not possible. And then what we really have to do is protect the people who are at risk. Like, why are we not giving out good N95 masks when people go for chemo? Why are we not um, getting, you know, patients out of hospital who need long-term care to free up acute care capacity, right? Like, why are we not doing these other things to be able to better live with this with less disruption on society. Right, right. Speaking of long-term care, on Twitter the other day, I encourage everyone to follow you on Twitter, by the way. I think you do an awesome job there talking about a lot of these issues. So you posted on Twitter the other day, people in long-term care need family. The balance has tipped too far with visitor restrictions. We need to tip it back and allow family back in. Why do you feel that way? Well, you know, if, if you've ever walked into a, a long-term care facility, you'll see. I mean, it, for a lot of people, it's a pretty sad place if there's no visitors there, right? And, and you know, having family come in is, is incredibly therapeutic, right? It's probably more important than the medications we're putting into people at that stage. So, you know, it, 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 to, to have month after month where there may be one family member who can go and visit that person... Um, it, it just it, it doesn't really to me feel ethical or humane. Now again, there's risk, right? You you are going to have people coming in and out. There's risk, but you got to balance that risk. And the, the the people who've never really been asked the question is the people in long term care. You know, you you talk to older people and they'll say, look, I really I've only got a couple of years left. I really want to go to Mexico, or I really mm-hmm. you know why are we deciding what's okay risk for them why can't they actually be part of that discussion as well right because everything we do in life is is risk benefit balance right and and every individual has to make that choice you uh, speaking of mexico you you mentioned on twitter as well that you're feeling optimistic the worst is behind us and you you feel confident enough that you've rebooked a family vacation for this march spring break was that a tough decision for you given the the travel advisories that are still in place. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, and our family has canceled travel on a number of occasions because of advisories. We've, we've not traveled because of that. We've followed, you know, advice to a T. I think it's the right thing to do. I, I do think that come March, the travel advisories, and I don't 
have a crystal ball, but I think they are going to come down yeah. um, because numbers are going in that right direction. If, if there was an advisory, you know, we, we, we probably wouldn't go. But, you know, I, I do think we're getting to a very different stage of this. And, and you know, I mean, it, it does seem by March that it's going to be probably reasonable to travel. Would I travel right now? No. Would I travel two weeks from now? No. But, but March is still further away, and I, I think that's probably reasonable. Dr. McLeod, I sure hope you're right, and I really enjoy having you on the show every time you're on. Thanks for making the time for us today. Find out about that woodcutter, Mike. All right, is that music just take you back there when the nightclubs are open? You want to get out and do some uh, dancing? Yeah, my dancing days are long behind me, believe me. But a lot of people still want to get out to nightclubs. Oh, too bad. They're shut down in British Columbia. Some of the rules are weird right now on this. You've got pubs are allowed to open. But bars and nightclubs are still shut down. What is the difference? Well, in pubs, you can order some food. If you sell food, you can stay open. Well, some nightclubs figuring out a way around this now. Let's check in with Dave Kershaw. He's the owner of the Cabana Lounge Nightclub in Granville Street. It's nice to have him back. Hey, Dave. Hey, Mike. How's it going, man? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for coming on. So you guys were able to reopen, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay, tell me how you did that. Well, pretty simply, Mike. Um, we just offered, uh, you know, food service from a couple of local restaurants, the pawn shop half a block away from us, and as well as a Domino's Pizza, which happens to be across the street. So uh, it was pretty easy to do, something we could have done right away if we had known that that was an option out of the gate. Yeah, I remember the last time you were on, I think I asked you, like, could, if you start selling food, could you reopen? And I, th- I believe you pointed out you, you didn't have a kitchen. Right? No, we don't. Yeah, yeah, we don't. But that doesn't stop us from, you know, offering the menu of the one of the five or six restaurants that's located in the same block as us. So um, we happen to be lucky. We're surrounded by other small businesses that we could lean on to uh, provide that food. And that allowed us to open. Okay. So you can get it. If you come down to the Cabana Lounge, you're open and you can get uh, have some fine Domino's pizza. Then. So, <laughs> how, so how many <laughs> Domino's? That's Go correct. Ahead. How many Domino's? Yeah. How many Domino's pizzas did you s- sell on the weekend? Uh, we actually sold thirty-nine large pizzas uh, on Friday and Saturday night, Mike. So um, people actually were, were they were really digging the pie. I can't lie; it was uh, <laughs> it was it was uh, it was it was really interesting. Um, people seem to be really enjoying it. I think it's something we'll probably continue to offer even when the restrictions lift. Right, and now your place is a is a dance club, right? You got a dance floor. Right. Well, we haven't we haven't had a dance floor for some time now. I mean, we've had right. to adapt during the pandemic, so dancing's not allowed. And of course, there's smaller table limits, and you must remain seated, and there's no mingling. But that's something that we've gotten very good at managing over the last couple of years. So it's been no problem to do it, and it was great to get my staff working again and to generate some revenue um, as opposed to zero. Right. So you're now functioning and operating, I suppose, more as a pub rather than a nightclub, despite what it might say on the your sign right yeah i mean if you want to put a label on it i I suppose i mean we haven't been operating like a nightclub for some time more like a lounge um where you can come and congregate and socialize with your small group of of close contacts and we just happen to be open later at night um so yeah we haven't really been operating like a a traditional nightclub in the sense of what you think of when you think nightclub for a long time now Right. Were you able to get approval to do this? Like, did you have to go to the Vancouver Health Authority and say, hey, look, 
I know I'm shut down, but my customers now can get food. We're ordering in food from local restaurants, so I'm opening up again. Is that okay? And they said it, they said it was okay? Or Well, yeah, exactly. So I didn't okay. have to get approval from them. It was actually written in the order that um, you could, as a liquor primary, open if you offered meal service or food, which was not, I mean, very different message than what Bonnie Henry said on December 21st when she said nightclubs and bars must close. So I called the local, I I mean, I said this before, I think we had to like almost decipher it for ourselves. Our industry representatives at ABLE kind of sent out an email saying, hey, you have this option. I actually called the health board to confirm this. And my local health officer, um, uh, she confirmed that I was right. My interpretation was correct. And I spoke to someone at the liquor board and they confirmed it as well. So I was, this was not like circumventing the rules. This was just like, opening up within the regulations. Right, okay. So do you think that, I imagine, like every bar and nightclub that shut down in B.C. could do the same thing, just say, come on down, if you want food, we can order in for you? You know what? Um, By the letter of the order, they could do exactly that. I mean, I think some places have chosen not to do so, and some venues are really still more relying on the dance floor being open if you're more of like a big DJ kind of dance club. We're more like a a high-end lounge with a lot of seating. So, yeah, but every nightclub or bar in BC could do exactly what I've done if they can offer food. Okay, what do your customers think about the whole thing? Um, you know, it's kind of turned into a sort of a, a bit of a funny thing. Uh, we're calling ourselves Cabana Pizza Lounge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Instead of Cabana Lounge. Um, but they're actually kind of enjoying it. You know, they're kind of enjoying it, having a bit of food with uh, with their night out. So, um it's created a uh, you know a bit of laughs and people are glad to be back even though it's not at full capacity people are still enjoying coming out and um you know having a night out okay all right well thanks for telling me about it dave thanks brother talk to you all right welcome back to the show here we go now with paid sick days in bc this is now the law of the land in our province it kicked in on january 1st workers now entitled to five paid sick days a year small business not happy about it many of them pushing back they say this will cost them a lot of money during a tough economy could some workers abuse the program call in sick when they're really not okay let's go back to last year here have a listen to bc labor minister harry baines here announcing this program here's what he had to say employers do not want their employees to come to work sick they have made this point loud and clear paid sick leave is the best way to achieve this so for the first time ever we are creating permanent problems by paid sick leave starting january 1st 2022 after an extensive consultation and with input from many voices, we have made a decision. All workers covered by Employment Standard Act will be entitled to a minimum of five days of employer-paid sick leave each year. Okay, Labor Minister Harry Baines there. Did you notice something that jumped out there in that clip where he said workers will be entitled to a minimum of five paid sick days a year? A minimum. Now, check this out. Some business groups looking into the fine print of this program and saying, wait a minute, there could be some circumstances here where workers get up to 10 paid sick days a year. 10. We talked about this on the show last week. I spoke to Annie Dormuth from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and here's what she had to say about it. 
but it's actually based on an employee's start date. So potentially that could equal up to 10 days in one year, which of course, as we know, and we have just heard, was not what the government had communicated to the public or business owners. Okay, so a lot of businesses unhappy about this. Let's check in with Greg Kylo now, BC Liberal MLA. He represents ShoeSwap in the legislature. He is the official opposition labor critic. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Greg. Good morning, Mike. Hey, what do you think of this program now that it's uh, been implemented here in BC? Well, hey, uh, it's really important to note that, uh, you know, as BC Liberal, we certainly support sick pay legislation in terms that British Columbians, you know, are healthy and safe. Uh, but we also believe the NDP certainly was not honest and forthcoming with small business owners about the parameters of the program or the magnitude of the cost. And that's the piece that, uh, that we're really uh, taking issue with. Okay, well, let's talk, about, let's talk about the cost, first of all. How much is this going to cost and, and what is your concern there? Yeah, well, five paid sick days equal approximately 2% of an employee's annual salary. Uh, we know that wow. the employer health tax at 1.95% had a cost magnitude of about $1.9 billion. So we're anticipating that uh, the potential cost of the paid sick leave program at five days could be upwards of $2 billion a year annually uh, on the backs of BC employers. Wow, okay, that's, that's a lot. And what would be the other option? I mean, somebody's got to pay for it, right? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. Well, the piece that, uh, that you highlighted and that CFIB have brought to light is that uh, there's a potential for employees getting upwards of 10 paid sick days uh, in yeah. fiscal 2022. Uh, so the magnitude of cost could be double, so upwards of $4 billion, certainly the single largest cost uh, uh, that's put on the backs of these businesses in, in recent history. And, uh, and that's where businesses that are already struggling due to the pandemic, uh, we certainly are hearing a lot from businesses that are just barely breaking even now. And, and John Horgan, you know, last year and, and the labor minister both indicated that businesses could not afford to take on additional cost burden during the pandemic. And yet yeah. they've turned around and done exactly that by putting significant cost burden on the back of uh, BC employers. Okay. At the same time you say that, though, you also said that you support paid sick days and the Liberal Party supports it. So what are you saying? Like, if, if you guys were in power, you would bring this in, but the government would pay for it or what? Yeah, no, so I think that there's, there's many ways that uh, the government could actually look at addressing this particular program. And I might add that uh, when this legislation came forward in the summer, or sorry, last spring, uh, there was no opportunity for the official opposition to scrutinize this legislation. So we have a government that's very secretive. They've given themselves their own power. Uh, so basically it was John Horgan and his cabinet ministers sitting around a cabinet table, and they are the ones who made the determination of the paid sick leave and put it fully right on the backs of BC businesses. Uh, we know that last year uh, there was a temporary paid sick leave program that was made available, and uh, the uh, about $325 million was set aside to help cover the cost and to reimburse business owners for a portion uh, of that cost. And yet uh, the program was underutilized. Uh, they only utilized about $10.5 million of that program. And yet rather than government taking those funds and making those funds available in fiscal 2022 to help ease the burden and the cost of employers, uh, they decided to put it in their back pocket and put business owners 
fully 100% on the hook for these additional costs. Okay, okay, but that's a one-time pot of money, right? So, like, even if the government had said, well, we'll take a few hundred million bucks here and, and spread it around to businesses that have to pay this, I mean, this is still going to be an ongoing permanent annual cost for business going forward. So once that money is depleted and gone, like then what? Are, are you saying that the government should continue to pay for this program forever? Well, hey, I think that uh, we've all recognized that uh, helping to keep ill people away from work, stopping the spread of, uh, of the virus is really uh, a benefit for the public good. There's many things that government. Uh, so, so is that that's a yeah, that's a yes? Then you're saying the government should pay for it, right? Well, I, uh, you know, I'm certainly uh, not the minister, but there's other jurisdictions around the globe that have come up with other ways to help uh, ease that burden of cost. But if you think about it, government could have quite easily uh, provided the opportunity for employers to provide uh, a 60 percent of an employee debt pay to them without deduction. But what's happening is that. Because all of the paid sick leave is uh, fully uh, taxable, government is actually feathering their own bed. The NEP government are actually uh, profiting on the backs of BC businesses and on this paid sick leave program, and that, I believe, is offensive. Okay, speaking to Greg Kylo, he's the Liberal Labor critic at the BC Legislature. Do you think that some employees will abuse this program? Like if, if they hear, okay, I get five paid sick days a year, Hmm, depending on when I was hired, I could even get more than that. I could get 10 paid sick days a year. And then, okay, I'm going to take a long weekend. Uh, I'm going to take a few days off sick day and get still get paid even though I'm not sick. You know, you hear this all the time. Like the, the most people call in sick the day after the Super Bowl, according to some studies. Like, are, are you concerned about that? Is the official opposition concerned about a potential abuse of the program? Yeah, I think that, that all business owners have some degree of concern about abuse uh, of, of a program like this. Uh, you know, and again, I think the, the piece that, that really, uh, I think, is most troubling for business owners is that business owners look to government in times of a pandemic and say, hey, who's got my back? Is government actually looking out for my best interests? Obviously, uh, you know, government's single largest single source of revenue is personal income tax. And you'd think that government would actually have a mind to helping to support and to strengthen uh, small businesses. And yet what we've seen is exactly the opposite. At a time when John Horgan said that businesses could not afford additional cost burden during a pandemic, he's done exactly the opposite. He's broken his promise to British Columbian businesses. Businesses that are really struggling right now, just keeping their doors open. Uh, many businesses are reporting losing significant amounts of revenue, depleting their savings accounts just to keep the doors open and to keep their people employed. And what does the John Horgan NDP government do? They layer on a significant amount of additional costs and much uncertainty. You know, even the way this program was laid out, uh, is it five days? Is it 10 days? Uh, You know, government has yet to actually come forward and actually provide some clarity with respect to was it really intended to be potentially as many as 10 days uh, in this calendar year? Okay, yeah, there is a lot of confusion out there on it for sure. I'm hearing from a lot of employers on that point. Thank you for coming on today to talk about this. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, welcome back. Let's talk e-scooters now, electric kick scooters. They're becoming more and more popular as a way to get around the city. You see them everywhere now, too. These are the stand-up scooters. They've got the stand-up handlebars. You can book it on these things, too. They go pretty fast. Lots of people like them, but... 
technically illegal in BC under the Motor Vehicle Act unless your local municipality approves them on city streets and more cities are doing just that the latest metro city to approve electric scooters north vancouver just approved a pilot project let's discuss now with my guest bradley spence the owner of evs personal electric vehicles store i'm very pleased to welcome him back hey bradley Hey, Mike, thanks for having me again. It's, it's nice to have you on again. Let's uh, describe what these e-scooters are for the listeners. A lot of people may know what we're talking about here, but I remember when uh, my kids were little, they used to have a, a toy scooter called a Razor scooter, you know, one of those you, you kick along it with the handlebars. That's what these things yeah. are. They, they're just motorized, though, right? Yeah, exactly. I had one of those when I was a kid as well. And yeah. uh, essentially, they're slightly bigger versions of those. Um, with battery packs built into the base, and some of them can go up to 25 kilometers per charge. Somebody, some of them can get range of up to over 100 kilometers per charge. Just depends on how big you want to go. How fast do they go? They range from 25 kilometers an hour um, all the way up to one that we consider for recreation use only that can hit speeds of 100 kilometers an hour. But that's oh, meant to be used like geez. a dirt bike on like off-road trails, not meant to be used on the street, of course. Yeah, yeah, you're not allowed to go yeah. 100 clicks an hour on these things on the street. Like, there is a, a, what is the speed limit for them in a municipality where they're approved? 24 kilometers an hour is the yeah. um, top speed you're supposed to go on these things for most municipalities. Right. Do you need to have a license to ride them? No, no license required. So you're essentially following the same rules as cyclists. Um, you got to stick to bike lanes or streets with speed limits posted 50 kilometers an hour or less. And uh, wear a helmet. You have to be 16 years or older in most municipalities. Some are have lower age limits. It just really depends. Um, and as long as you're respecting the roads, not riding on the sidewalks, um, these things are a great way to get around town. Um, a lot of people are selling their cars and switching to, to these. So they don't have to worry about finding parking or insurance and gas and all that right okay city of north vancouver has now approved an e-scooter pilot project and we've had several other municipalities do the same thing like how many municipalities have now approved them i i think we're at about seven or eight now yeah yeah, yeah. i think we're at like seven or eight in british columbia right now so you know more municip more municipalities getting on board with these pilot projects to say okay we're going to let you ride these legally on the street now a lot of people are doing it illegally anyway um, what kind of reviews are you hearing? Like, are, is this a popular measure that cities are taking, in your opinion? From our experience in our store, yeah, most people, especially once they're educated about them, um, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, you get the odd person that resists change, but just like horses turned into cars on the road, and now uh, there's electric cars, and now there's uh, personal electric vehicles, um, change is coming, and people are just going to have to get used to it. But um, overall, it's been an overwhelmingly positive, and our, our sales have been booming even in the winter when it's not the time of year you don't think you'd want to be riding. Yeah, speaking of Bradley Spence, he's the owner of EVs. It's a personal electric vehicle store. They sell those e-scooters and, and lots of other uh, electric vehicles there too, personal vehicles. Bradley, l last time I had you on, I know you were, you were having trouble keeping, keeping your store stocked because there was so much demand. So, uh, demand is still up, huh? Yeah, we've grown a lot. We've uh, got a lot more investment into the store and our inventory now, so um, that shouldn't be a problem we have going forward. 
But uh, we were blown away when we opened last March. We were sold out of all our inventory in, in less than a month. <laughs> so we're uh, fully ramped for the spring summer coming up here. Okay, how much are one of these e-scooters? They start at six ninety nine, and they go up to about twenty seven hundred dollars for uh, anyone that's street legal. Okay, so six ninety nine up to tw- up to t- how much? Twenty seven hundred. Yeah, that's right. Twenty seven hundred bucks. Okay, and you know how long does it take to charge them up? Uh, anywhere between four to nine hours, depending on the model. The bigger the battery, the longer it takes to charge, usually. Right. And you mentioned, you, you went over this a little earlier, but what, are the, what is the range of a fully charged e-scooter? How far can you go on them? Um, the base models go up to 25 kilometers, and some of the higher-end models can go up to 60, 65 kilometers for the ones that are street legal. Okay, well, that's not bad. Like, if you were thinking, I'm just thinking in terms of someone maybe doing a commute to somewhere, if they're going to work or they're going to a store. Like, in your experience, when people come into your store and they buy these, are they buying them for just recreation and fun, or are they buying them to sort of get around in their life every day? To get around. Most people are buying them yeah. to commute. We have people that are commuting all the way from Vancouver to Surrey every single day on their electric scooter. Wow. And there's also a lot of food delivery people that are using electric scooters to deliver food. So it's a much more environmentally friendly way to um, get around town and, and offer the food deliveries and, and everything. Hey, let me ask you about some of the other vehicles that you sell there at EVs, because I was just checking out your website again this morning, and it looks like one of the more popular vehicles that you sell there are like those unicycles, like the, the, single, the single wheel one that has got pedals yeah. on the side of the wheel. What do you call those? We call those EUCs, or electric unicycles, um, yeah. but EUC for short, and they are by far the most practical thing we sell. We actually sell the same amount dollar-wise uh, EUCs as we do scooters, so they're almost just as popular, and um, they're nice because you can bring them into the grocery store or put them under the table if you go to a restaurant. You, you can roll them pretty much about just about anywhere. They're really small and compact, and they're safer than people think because they're on a single wheel, so you have a lot of maneuverability. So if the car cuts you off or turns in front of you, you can swerve out of the way pretty quick. Um, it's one of the most practical things we sell. And they're easier oh, yeah. to learn than, than you think as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you see them for the first time, you're looking at them you're going, what the heck? Like, how do you even stop that thing? Like, they've got brakes, obviously, right? How do the brakes work on them? Yeah, they use an engine brake. It's called a regenerative braking. So when you brake, it actually recharges the battery, um, just like a Tesla would. And essentially, the wheel becomes like an extension of your body. So you're able to react very, very quickly. And out of everything we sell, I'd actually say the electric unicycles are the most safe. The only problem is people look at them and they think, I can never ride that. But we offer free lessons every Saturday and Sunday morning. And we've taught 75-year-old men how to ride. It's pretty much anyone can learn as long as they're willing to commit about an hour to 90 minutes to learn. But those are illegal, right? Like North Van has brought in this pilot project for e-scooters, but has any municipality actually legalized those unicycles? No. Originally, they yeah. were supposed to, under my, I was under the impression they were supposed to be legalized with electric scooters, but the city of Vancouver wants to ease the public into these things. I don't think they want to give too much too fast, um, just so the public perception can, can grow and make sure um, people are respecting the roads and respecting the rules. So technically, no, they're not illegal, but I have talked to a few police officers that told me they're not really writing tickets for them unless they're riding aggressively or being dangerous on them. So we've never had any of our customers receive a ticket or anything like that. Bradley, where is your store if people want to check it out? Yeah, we're located at 230 East Pender Street. 
Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about collectible running shoes now. And who knew they could be worth so much money? There is a brisk trade right now in rare collectible sneakers, especially, of course, a pair of Air Jordans. Now, I was talking to one of my son's buddies about this a while ago. He was selling a pair of Air Jordans that he somehow got hold of. He was selling them on Facebook Marketplace, and there's like a bidding war for these shoes going on. And I think he got a couple hundred bucks for a pair of used Air Jordans. But let me tell you, some of these shoes are a lot more rare and can cost a lot more money. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ty Engman. Ty is a rare sneaker buyer and seller. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Ty. Hey, how are you? Hey, Ty, thanks a lot for coming on. This is real interesting uh, business you're, you're into here because I was just reading about what a, a, a amazing uh, um, progress you've, you've made here in this market. Ty, Tom, how did you get into this? How did you get into selling these shoes, buying and selling shoes? Uh, probably like six, six, seven, eight years ago. That was when I first, well, I got my first shoe. And then kind of just from that point on, I developed a passion for shoes and I just, just decided that, I don't know, I, I, I was a big fan of shoes and I rather than shoes and like, I don't know, buy nice clothes. So then, yeah, I, I think like five years ago, I bought my first, um, Air Jordan, which released in 1985. That's the first, first Ooh. shoe that Michael Jordan put out. Wow. Um, so then when he played on the Bulls and whatnot, um, that was like the shoe that he was wearing. Eventually it got banned from the NBA. Um, it's kind of the shoe that created the whole sneaker culture and um, all this hype behind all these shoes now. Like, I don't think anyone would have thought that shoes would have taken off and become what they are now. So yeah. How much are those Air Jordans worth now, that first pair? Oh, like a brand new pair selling like upwards of like 25000 now. Whoa! pairs and uh, like game worn pairs. There was a game worn. Um, it's called the Nike Airship. They released in 1984, and it was signed by Michael Jordan. Worn. It sold at uh, Sotheby's auction for like 1.2 million. Oh man! Oh man! Oh, this is crazy! Wow! All right. So you do this? Do you do this full time now? Buy and sell these shoes now? It's like your full time gig right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've wow. been doing this probably. Well, like I said, like six, six, seven years. Um, at first, I didn't know if I'd be, be able to do it full time, obviously, because, you know, shoes are shoes. And I don't know, it was, it was kind of, I, I needed to determine if I could do it full time or if I, if I couldn't. But with uh, hard work, we got, we got to, I got to be able to do it full time now. So Wow. Wow, that's, that's amazing. And you dropped out of university to do this full time? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was at uh, SFU in BD school there and eventually it got to a point where it was very hard for me to juggle both school and run uh, run run my business so I decided that my business was what I was gonna go forward with and do that and then I determined well I decided that I was going to transfer my credits that I had at SFU over to uh, Douglas to get a, a certificate there so wow. I'm still working on that and I just didn't want to throw all the courses that I had already completed away so I figured that that was the best thing that I could do. Okay, speaking of Ty Engman, uh, he's a buyer and seller of rare sneakers. Ty, I know you've got some famous clients, right? Like, do, do sometimes famous people reach out to you if they're looking for a pair of rare sneakers? Yeah, I guess now I've kind of developed, like, a, a name for myself within 
the original Jordan um, market. So there isn't many sellers, I think. Oh, there's probably like five-ish sellers around the world. Well, that are that are like that's what they sell and it's what they like do. So, yeah. so yeah, no, I've uh, dealt with some pretty cool people. Um, one of them being like Devin Booker, who plays on the Phoenix Suns. He actually wore a pair that I sold him on the Slam Kicks magazine cover that came out wow. last year. Wow. Um, cool. Yeah. In addition to him, uh, like Kevin Hart. And a few rappers such as Lil Yachty and Wire and Takeoff, who's part of the Migos. Um, so yeah, no, it's definitely been cool to to meet people, and I think that's part of the kind of kind of what I enjoy the most um, yeah. in oh, my business is just talking to everyone. A, yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. What is the rarest pair of uh, sneakers that you've that you've bought or sold? Would you say? I have I have this uh, 1985 metallic green. I'd say that's probably the rarest one that I have at the moment, just because it took me so long to find it. I'm trying to complete the whole original 1985 Jordan One set, so I need six more to do that. Wow! wow. And, okay. Yeah, I don't know. These six, though, I just no luck finding them. But hopefully, with time, I'll I'll be able to find them. But what's the most? The What's the most valuable uh, pair of sneakers you've had? Like, how, what's the most you've ever sold a pair for? Uh, last year, I sold a pair of uh, 1985 Jordan 1. They're the royal blue colorway, um, brand new, never worn. And they had the original box. Um, sold them for 21000 21000 bucks. Yeah. For a pair of Air Jordans. Oh, my God. <laughs> brand yeah. new. Brand new, still in the box. I guess you'd never, whoever bought them is never going to wear them, right? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's crazy because if you think about that, like she was like 37 years old now, so it, it's really crazy to come across um, some of these shoes that have never been worn, and you hear stories where someone bought them for someone, and then they just ended up sitting in the closet for 30 some odd years, and there it is, and little did they know that it'd be worth what they're worth nowadays. So <laughs> some people oh, are man. definitely happy, but. Okay, what's your sort of um, holy grail of, uh, of of running shoes? Like the the pair that you you dream about that you're dying to dying to find, dying to f- buy a pair of them. Which one would you say? <sighs> Probably there's a 1985 orange metallic that I just can't find. It's part of the six that I'm looking for, and yeah, if I could find that, that would definitely be the one shoe that. Wow. That would be my whole And that's Air, Air, Air Jordan, right? Air Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, is that all you deal in is the Air Jordan shoes, or are there other collectible shoes, like, you know, promoted by other players and stuff? Um, for the most part, I'd say the, the Air Jordans are kind of what built my brand to, or my, my company to what it is um, yeah. right now. But I also deal, deal with, like, skate shoes, like Nike SBs and rare or just rarer shoes in general that aren't seen every day and yeah do you think do you think there's some shoes that are in this market that are kind of overrated or overhyped that you would not that you'd steer away from um it's 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 kind of hard to say because now like because the Air Jordan has all this hype, Nike's kind of pushing them almost too much and just releasing too many new colors and kind of like oversaturating them yeah to a point where it's just how many more colors can they can they release but uh 
kind of why I'm in what I'm in is just because I like all the history and everything behind the shoe versus just how they look. I yeah. I think it's I think that's the that's the interesting part for me, but and what would you what would you say like what determines the value of these shoes? Like when you mentioned you sold a pair of Air Jordans for over 20 grand, like what determines that? Is it purely kind of a supply supply and demand thing? Like if the shoe is super rare and there's a big obviously the price goes up, right? I'd say rarity definitely has um a big part a big part of it. I'd also just say uh, the history behind it and that, I don't know, Michael Jordan's, in my opinion, arguably one of the best basketball players of all time. So I think it's kind of cool to, to I don't know, get your hands on a pair that's never been worn that he released. It was the first released. And I think that's that's where a lot of people see the value in it. And yeah. it's kind of viewed more as art now versus just like a shoe. Okay, well, Ty, I'll tell you what, man, that's a fascinating business you're in. Congratulations on all the success you're enjoying with it, and it was, it was very cool to speak to you about it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, Have yourself you, a great day. 